Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, episode 113, You Are God Alone, Not a God. Well, I know that the episodes are still uh, few and far between right now, uh, for which I continue to apologize and, and hope to remedy, uh, you know, before too long. I do have a couple of uh, episode ideas floating around that I hope to um, uh, that I hope to manifest in in the not too distant future. Uh, wanted to catch you guys up a little bit with uh, what's going on with me. First of all. Um, for those of you who don't listen to uh, the Rethinking Hell podcast or follow the blog, um, the, uh, we are publishing a book, a book which I am the uh, lead editor on. Uh, my name's going to be on the cover and stuff. It's pretty cool. I, I'll be a published editor. Um, it's pretty exciting. Uh, Whip and Stock, uh, the the publisher that published the third edition of Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes, is going to be publishing the book, and we are expecting that to be published within you know, maybe a month or two in time for our inaugural Rethinking Hell conference, which is going to be held in Houston, Texas, at the Lanier Theological Library in July of this year. Uh, you can find out information about all of this at rethinkinghellconference.com. Uh, and I would really encourage you to check it out and attend. Uh, I think that the price is good. And um, in addition to the plenary speakers and the breakout sessions, all of which I think are going to be excellent, an interview with Edward Fudge, in addition to all of that, we're going to have what I think is a pretty exciting panel, um, a roundtable discussion kind of a thing with several pretty well-known evangelical scholars uh, present at the actual, uh, at the actual conference. Um, besides John Stackhouse and Edward Fudge, who will be the representatives of conditional immortality. We'll also have um, a universalist, Thomas Talbot, who's pretty well known as evangelical universalists go. Um, and of course, that's assuming that you're comfortable attaching the label evangelical to a universalist, which I know many of you are not. Um, uh, but then also we're going to have three people who hold to a more or less traditional view of hell. We'll have uh, philosopher Jerry Walls, We'll also have uh, Roger Olson, and we'll have Sean Bowalski. Bowalski, I don't know how to pronounce his name just yet. Um, but each of them hold to a slightly different form or variant of the traditional view of hell. And these six um, evangelical figures will be in the, on, the, in the, on the same stage, in the same room, at the same time, to discuss um, with one another in a very friendly, collegiate way, I think, uh, the, the nature of hell as, as, as each of these different people perceive it. So anyway, this conference is going to be huge. I would encourage you to go to RethinkingHellConference.com and, um, uh, and and check out the details. Uh, also, I'm going to be flying to London with my wife in a couple of months, toward the end of April, actually. We'll, we'll leave April 26th to fly across the pond over to London. Um, the, the original purpose behind considering going to London was that I'm going to have the opportunity to be on Justin Brierley's unbelievable radio program once again. I was on the show a couple of years ago remotely over the phone, and this time I'll be able to do it in person, which is 
which is just really exciting. I'm going to be using the opportunity to promote um, the book that we're publishing as well as the conference uh, and, and hopefully do something kind of like what he's done in the past when he's done his Grill a Christian shows, but this time it'll be a Grill and Annihilationist, <laughs> so it should be uh, challenging and fun. Um, but anyway, that was that was what originally prompted uh, my wife and I to decide to fly out there, or what prompted me to consider flying out there. Uh, but it occurred to me as I was considering doing that that my lo- my wife would love a vacation like that, particularly one if uh, one had without our children. If we can uh, find somebody to care for them, and we were able to, so this will be a great time for my wife and I to get some alone time and enjoy another country. Uh, so anyway, if any of you were, happen to be listening right now that live you know in London and you would like to uh, visit during the week of April twenty eighth to uh, May second, you know shoot me an email chris at theapologetics dot com and, and maybe we can hang out. Um, that sort of leads into uh, what I want to have to say to introduce the episode that you're about to listen to. Uh, and the reason is because uh, somebody that I've had on the show um, a couple of episodes ago also lives in London. And he and I are hopefully going to get together for uh, for lunch, his, his, him and his, his wife as well as me and my wife. Um, and uh, his name is Chris Tilling. And he was on the, this podcast a couple of pod, uh, episodes ago, back in August, I believe, of 2013, to discuss his uh, thesis, the, the book uh, um, entitled Paul's Divine Christology. And uh, I thought that podcast was excellent. Um, but uh, somebody that uh, is sort of a friend of a friend of mine, his name is Dave Barron. He is a Unitarian. Uh, he calls himself, I think, a semi-Arian. And he, uh, he had some thoughts that he wanted to share as well. Uh, I was hoping originally to get Chris and Dave on together to have sort of a free-flowing informal dialogue. But at the last minute, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Tilling was unable to um, to make the time that we had originally scheduled the recording for. However, what he was able to do was he, he was able to have Dave and I talk for about an hour. And then I shared the recording of that discussion with Chris. And then he was able to come on and talk with me for about an hour. So in the episode that you're going to listen to, uh, we're first going to be joined by Dave Barron, uh, the friend of my friend Mike Felker, um, who has also, by the way, been on the show a couple of times. Anyway, Dave and I discuss what Dave uh, thinks about Chris's thesis and, and the Trinitarian um, argument that he lays out in his book. Uh, and then after Dave is on, then you'll hear me transition to talking to uh, Chris Tilling. Of course, this didn't happen live. It happened with several days apart. Um, but nevertheless, I think I've put it together in a way that's, that flows smoothly. So I hope that um, you'll enjoy this supersized episode of the podcast. Hopefully it'll hold you over uh, until um, until the next episode of the podcast, whenever that will be. But before we jump right into this, uh, this di- discussion, first with Dave and then with uh, Chris, uh, let me play the next promo in my rotation, which is for somebody I'm a huge fan of, Dr., uh, Dr. James White and his show, The Dividing Line. Broadcasting around the world from the desert metropolis of Phoenix, Arizona, this is The Dividing Line. The Apostle Peter commanded Christians to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, yet to give that answer with gentleness and reverence. Our host is Dr. James White, director of Alpha Omega Ministries and an elder at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. 
This is a live program, and we invite your participation. If you'd like to talk with Dr. White, call now at 602-973-4602 or toll-free across the United States. It's 1-877-753-3341. And now with today's topic, here is James White. Uh, now, some of you who are familiar with my podcast or promo rotation will know that normally uh, Dr. James White and the Dividing Line isn't next in my promo. But sadly, it l- seems to me as if um, a couple of the podcasts in my rotation have sort of uh, fallen off the radar a little bit or are no longer produce, uh, publishing new material or whatever. And so I- I've skipped ahead to Dr. James White and the Dividing Line because unlike them, he has been uh, you know, very consistent, um, you know, very regularly puts out the podcasts. And I can't say um, I, I can't speak highly enough of him. Uh, you know, he, he, he's I, I think his exegesis is great. I know many of you won't agree. I think his exegesis is great. Uh, I really appreciate his um, his uh, apologetics work toward Muslims, his, his apologetic work toward uh, Catholics, the debates that he's done, all these kinds of things. Had him on my show, on my show a couple of times. Really appreciate uh, his ministry. And uh, I would definitely encourage you to check him out at aomin.org. That's A-O-M-I-N.org. It's short for Alpha and Omega Ministries. You can listen to his podcast, The Dividing Line, uh, most Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Uh, and most Thursday afternoons at 4 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. And there's a pre-feed that begins about 30 minutes or so before the start of the program. You can also uh, watch his um, video, uh, watch the podcast on, on live streaming on YouTube. You can find all these details out at aomin.org if you just click on the webcast link. So do check those out. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump right into my discussion with Dave Barron, uh, the Unitarian. And I should call him the Unitarian, but you know what I mean. Dave Barron, and then followed by Trinity. Dr. Chris Tilling. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by your plan. That's just the way it is. You are God alone from before time Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. It's been a long time coming. Uh, in a recent interview that I've done on my show, I had uh, Chris Tilling from the UK on my show to talk about his uh, his dissertation on the Christology of Paul. Uh, and also recently, uh, a mutual friend of mine named Dave Barron, uh, he debated Dr. Phil Fernandez on the topic of his Jesus Christ Almighty God. Uh, and he is joining me today to have a sort of virtual conversation with Chris Tilling, uh, where I'll spend about a half hour with Dave to get an idea of where he's coming from. Uh, and then I'll bring Chris on the call afterwards to uh, to respond to Dave's thoughts and maybe hopefully get a conversation started. Uh, so Dave, I just want to thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? I'm very good this morning. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, to, to put some, uh, you know, so, so that you're not just sort of some uh, faceless, uh, identityless person on the internet for our listeners that might, uh, you know, it, it's easy for for some Christians to get sort of develop um, uh, 
negative feelings for people that hold to uh, unorthodox views that are sort of faceless and nameless on the internet or whatever, to put some flesh on the bones and give people an idea of who you are as a person. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, about your who you are, who Dave Barron is? You know, do you have what's your family like? What do you do for a living? Stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of my family, I, I've been married. It'll be ten years this coming August. Um, we have two children, Lucas, who's five, and Maxon, who will be one in four days. Oh wow! So uh, yeah, it's uh, you know pretty interesting around here. <laughs> with with two kids, they definitely keep us busy. Um, in terms of, of what I do professionally, I, I work in uh, information security, and so uh, basically fighting off viruses and malware from whoever is trying to penetrate our. Beyond that, uh, I've been involved with ministry um, for for quite a long time, but specifically my website, scripturaltruths.com. Um, I, I've been working on things that led up to that for um, probably about 12 years. And then in 2009, I believe it was, I published my first book, God in Christ, Examining the Evidence for a Biblical Doctrine, really in some ways relates to what we're talking to uh, talking about today. Yeah. Well, at the end of the interview, I'll give you uh, another chance to uh, to give us that website and the name of your book so that our listeners will uh, will check you out. All right. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about your your faith background. I mean, have you always been a professing believer in Jesus Christ? Were you raised a Christian, or is this something that you came to later in life? Um. Well, it, it's it's kind of interesting. Um. Actually, I, I, I guess my my earliest Christian background could be as an infant where uh, I was actually baptized Catholic. Um, but throughout my, my childhood, uh, church attendance was sporadic, to put it lightly. Um, we spent some time in uh, a Lutheran church, um, we spent some time in a Baptist church, and then also uh, around Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, you know, through all that, it's rather interesting because People say, well, you know, there, there it's that Jehovah's Witness background. That, that's why I take the position that I do today. But I don't ever remember a time when I ever thought anything different about Jesus than, than what I do now, um, even into my earliest childhood. Well, that's that's interesting. You said that because that was going to be my next question for you. Is uh, you know, is, is the position that you've held regarding the nature of Christ, which we'll talk about in a moment, something that you've held as long as you can remember being a believer in the Bible as you understand it, or is it something that you were sort of convinced of? I mean, for example, as you probably know, um, you know, I spent the first ten years of my faith or, or so, give or take, uh, a believer in what is the traditional doctrine of hell. You know, and then I was my mind was changed on that topic and have been sort of arguing pretty passionately about uh, my current view since. And so I'm just I was going to ask you, you know, did you undergo a similar kind of change of mind or has your current position been pretty much what you've always believed about him? You know, it's interesting because I've never identified Jesus with God uh, for, like I said, for as long as I can remember. But I would say what has changed, and this has been really in the past decade, is I now hold to what really is a much higher Christology than I would have, you know, a, a decade ago, and that's been from an examination of the evidence. So, when you say a much higher Christology, a much higher Christology than what than they used to hold? Right, exactly. I, I see Christ uh, in a much more uh, centric way, or, or you know, with within the Bible, um, and in his position now 
next to God as, as much higher in the honor and worship that he's deserving of as, as much higher than I had in the past. I see. I, I want to come back to that a little bit later because, uh, you know, the language of a higher Christology is something that, um, that I'd like to get your thoughts about a little bit later. But before we do that, just so that our, our listeners are not under any sort of uh, misapprehensions about where you're coming from, uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion uh, that, that is fostered by the use of terminology, words like Arminian, or, or sorry, um, Arian, Socinian, Unitarian, stuff like that. Um, I understand that labels are, are things that many of us don't prefer and that can always just cause confusion. So can you just sort of summarize for us, regardless of what label you prefer to use, what you understand to be the nature of God and the nature of Christ, uh, particularly as they differ from how most of us Christians understand it? Um, sure. I mean, you know, in terms of a label, I'm the, the closest thing I can probably come up with is semi-Aryan. Um, but, you know, for myself, I, I see the Bible affirming that Jesus pre-existed um, whether or not one could say that was a, a an eternal preexistence uh, comes down in, in large part to how you view time. If time is something created, then then Christ uh, is necessarily eternal in that sense, but but not uncreated himself. Um, and so I, I see him as as a distinct figure from God, who became human, who died for our sins, and of course who was resurrected on the third day. And, and so when you say that if, I mean, the language that you used there about the, the beginning of time and so forth, does that mean that you, you would, forgive me for maybe being a little bit crass if that's the right word, but you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are sometimes, uh, we, we Christians are often familiar with the way that they will say things like Jesus is the first being that God created and he created everything else. Is that kind of what you're saying? Is that Jesus, Jesus created time itself along with the rest of, you know, the cosmos or something like that? And in that respect, you might call him eternal? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Right. I, I do believe that the Bible uh, affirms that Jesus is created, but you know, you get you get into some technical issues when we say, "Well, is he eternal or not?" Mm. And so, it, you know, that's where where I'm kind of coming from. There is, you know, if we say time is just a, uh, a a period between events, then well, no, in that sense, I guess Jesus wouldn't be eternal. But if if time is actually something that's created, then then yes, in that context, I would say that Jesus would be eternal. Okay. Now, for those of our listeners that happen to catch your debate with Phil Fernandez or maybe have watched some of the YouTube videos that you did, like the one in response to James White uh, a couple of years ago after he debated um, Patrick Novice on my show, uh, for those listeners who haven't watched those kinds of things, can you sort of lay out a brief positive case for your understanding of the nature of uh, God and of Christ. Um, and I understand that brief might be something that's, uh, it might be hard to do in a brief period of time. So, you know, feel free to take a few minutes, but I just want to, before I start, you know, asking you questions to press back on your position, particularly ones that have to do with Chris Tilling's thesis, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to explain to our listeners what has, what it is that convinces you in, in terms of a positive case uh, that God is you know, unitary in his nature and that Christ was created by God rather than to be identified with him. Sure. Um, well, the, fir the first thing I would note is that if we look in the, the, the material of, of Second Temple Judaism, what we don't find is the idea uh, of God existing in multiple persons. And so when we come to the New Testament, we don't see this teaching, you know, explicitly l laid out either. And so it's, it's the, the lack of evidence there that I would say is, is the first issue. But beyond that, you know, for example, if we go to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many 
portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so we see a reference here to, to the God who, who spoke to the fathers and the prophets. And, and that, of course, has to be here the father because it, it then references in verse 2 his son. And so that really would be the God of the Old Testament. That's the one who, who did this. And so in, in this particular verse, we see him you know, plainly distinguished from his son. But in terms of Jesus being created, um, probably one of my favorite texts for that would be Colossians 1.15, where Jesus is called the, the firstborn of all creation. And my, my argument, and though I, I tend to think that, that firstborn there does mean first in time, isn't uh, explicitly related to that. Rather, it has to do with the fact that, that when we consider when one is, is firstborn of a group, in, in every example I can find anywhere, the one who is the firstborn is always uh, a member of the group of which they are firstborn of. Hmm. And so, specifically here, it says he is the firstborn because all things were created in him. And so, th- the basis for him being that firstborn goes back to original creation. It's not something that it's now the case. He's the firstborn of all creation because he became human and God exalted him and placed him in that position. But it's because of his, his, his work in that creation. So, so even in original creation, Jesus is the, the, that firstborn. And so at that, from that point forward, he would be, from my understanding of the text, identified as a member of creation. I see. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that I think I have heard you, uh, if I haven't heard you talk about, I've, I've seen it in Facebook threads and stuff, is uh, is that, you know, the, the New Testament says that Christ was given a, a name, he was given a, a status, you know, of, of, of exaltation, that if I understand you right, is something you don't think he would have already had. He would have already had that name. He would have already had that kind of status. Um, and so w- would it be fair to say that you see his being exalted as being evidence that he isn't, in fact, uh, the God that is said to have exalted him? Well, right, exactly. Because, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he was given the name above every name. Well, I would identify that name as, as the divine name Jehovah or Yahweh. And if Jesus is, in fact, eternally Yahweh, well, then he's already eternally possessed this name. Mm. Uh, and we see the same point in, in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says that he has inherited a name greater than they. And then also in John 17, where Jesus is, is praying to God and he speaks of, of his name, that being the Father's name, which he has given to Jesus. And so, yeah, I see that Jesus has been, been given, actually, the divine name. And so we do see that this is applied, I would say, through the use of kurios in the New Testament to Jesus, but it's all derivative. Okay, and I and I asked that question for two reasons. First of all, I wanted to give uh, Chris Tilling a, a few things to respond to in terms of your positive case for holding the view that you do when he comes on a little bit later. Uh, but the second reason is because I thought, I thought it was kind of a somewhat of a nice transition into the next question I have for you, which is, you know, immediately many things are going to come to uh, my listeners' minds who are Trinitarian like I am, where, you know, Jesus is, is apparently called God. You know, I have in mind, for example, when um, Doubting Thomas is invited to put his, uh, his his hand into the side of the wounds of Christ, and he, he ends up exclaiming, my Lord and my God. And of course, you've got John in, his, in, in the opening uh, of his gospel, in which he, uh, you know, he says that uh, the word was God, and, and um, 
so forth. And so, but in response to these kinds of things, you, you bring to the table this idea of agency, and and this ties, I think, together with the last question I asked you because uh, my understanding is that your view is that Christ is an exalted agent, uh, to use um, sort of terminology that describes similar figures in Second Temple Judaism texts. And so maybe you could sort of explain to our listeners what divine agency is and, and how you think that it ex- it accounts for some of this exalted language um, in which Christ is virtually called God, if not explicitly called God. Sure. Um, you know, divine agency is, is a very important concept in, in Second Temple Judaism. You see it in, in numerous writings from the time, and we see it in the Bible as well. And in short, what we find is that certain exalted figures could bear divine titles, they, they could even bear the divine name, and then also uh, carry on divine prerogatives. And these would be ones that, that God specifically chose to carry this out. And so, you know, for example, with the use of the term God, um, in Philo, uh, in his writings on Moses, he tells that the people called Moses God and king of the whole nation. Uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, in the Melchizedek Scroll, there are actually old, two Old Testament passages, well, actually more than two, uh, that are applied to Melchizedek there, one being Psalm 82.1, where he is the God who, who sits... Uh, among the gods, and then also Psalm 7, 7, and 8, where here, um, El, which in Hebrew is God, is applied to Melchizedek, but what's interesting is that in the original source text, uh, it's actually the divine name that's present in that text, and and El in the Dead Sea Scrolls was commonly used in in place of the divine name, much as we see um, Kodios, for example, in the Septuagint. And so, this is this is kind of something you know we see we see a pattern of in various um, various Second Temple uh, Jewish works, and so w- when we come to the the New Testament and dealing with Christ, that we see these same types of things. You know, if Christ is in fact an exalted figure, and of course I, I think he is, um, we would expect this. Uh, it's it's directly in line with with what we're seeing elsewhere at the time, and actually what we see elsewhere even in the Bible and. You know, we could explore that as well. And so with Christ, you know, I do see him as an exalted agent, but I want to be clear that I don't see him as only an exalted agent. Mm. Um, Larry Hurtado uses the term mutation to describe, you know, specifically the, the cultic veneration of Jesus. But I would say that that mutation goes beyond simply that. Uh, just as an example, in talking about the, the use of the divine name in application to Jesus Philippians 2, for example, we don't see anywhere in Second Temple uh, figures where the divine name is given in that respect. Uh, they're indwelled with it, the, the divine name, other figures are, they're called by it, but, but no other figure that I'm aware of is ever given the name in the, in the way that Jesus is, and that, you know, in, in Hebrews 1, for example, it's, it's an inheritance. It becomes his own name. So that's that's certainly unique to Christ, and so in that way, for example, and that's just one way, I would see Christ as unique, uh, as a mutation in the way in which he's been exalted. So the most exalted of all exalted agents. 
Uh, yes, that would yeah. be putting it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, now you've probably listened to my interview with Chris Tilling, and, and I, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you've you've read much of, if not all of his um, uh, very voluminous dissertation. Uh, do you want to? You know, you're familiar with sort of his his overall argument that uh, that you know tr- that monotheism is something that's defined primarily relationally, and that uh, and that the relational cultic worship that is only given to God in the Old Testament and from his perspective isn't given to any agents in Second Temple Judaism is something that is given uh, – attributed to Jesus in, in the New Testament. And, and for him, that's really um, – uh, that's really noteworthy and, and should be uh, taken very seriously when we're discussing the question of Christ's identity. Um, and of course, he says a whole lot more than that. <laughs> but I, I just want to give you an opportunity to, to – from your perspective – Explain for us why you don't find uh, his thesis compelling. What, what, what do you what do you think are sort of the deficiencies in his argument that that cause it to not be convincing for you? Well, well, first I want to say that I do appreciate his work a lot. Um, I think he offers a lot of valuable insights that are, are worthy of consideration, and and in many ways some of that uh, that 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 same material he covers um, is also why I said earlier that my Christology has become higher because of, because of some of those same things. But that being said, why I don't find his conclusions, I would say, convincing, well, that's because I don't think he's properly considering the basis for why those things are true. While historically, um, God, you know, those things were inclusive within that, that monotheism of Judaism, the question becomes is, why did Jesus receive those things? If we look in the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves, does you know, Paul specifically dealing with him, because that's the, the focus of his thesis, um, does Paul believe that this is because God consists of multiple persons, or does, it, does he believe it, that it's because it, it is God's will that Christ now received these things? And so he has exalted Christ accordingly and placed him in the position to receive those things. And it is that that's why I find that to be the case. You know, for example, talked a little bit about Philippians chapter two already. And, and what we find in, in this particular text, you know, found, starting in verse eight, it says, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so this isn't necessarily talking specifically about that relationship. But there's two points I think that, that should be said here. First, if, if all bowing to Jesus and confessing him to be Lord it is derived from God exalting him and that relational aspect is so much even higher than just bowing, which I think we probably all agree that it is, um, then how much more so is that than seen in Jesus being exalted? Okay, I understand. So, well, I think I understand. So what you're saying is that what you think accounts for the unique relationship that um, 
that Jesus, or, or sorry, the, the unique status that Jesus is said to have in the New Testament, something unlike, uh, you know, unlike as you've already acknowledged, the, the most of the or all of the uh, divine agents that you can find in Second Temple Judaism texts and so forth. If if what accounts for that, or we're saying accounts for that, is the fact that he was exalted to have that kind of a status, to 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 deserve that kind of a, um, uh, or, or or we're commanded to give him that kind of level of of worship and uh, and have that kind of admiration and adoration for him. Um, if that's the case, if I've understood you more or less correctly, I, I guess the question I would have for you is a question that you know our mutual friend Mike Felker uh, wanted to to ask, which is, are you saying that we are to worship Jesus simply because we're commanded to, or, or do you think that there's something more to it? I mean, it would seem to me anyway that worship. And the kind of adoration, cultic adoration that we're to have for, for anybody, whether that's Jesus or God, would seemingly have more to do than simply the fact that we're commanded to do so. Um, it would seem to me that it has something to do with the, the nature of the person that we're told to worship. So I guess – so that, yeah, I mean is there something more to why it is that we're to worship Jesus than simply God commands it? Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that that perspective kind of has a fact. Um, you know, we have to consider, first of all, and, and this is also a difference, I think, that, um, that exists between Christ and, and, and Second Temple Jew, Jewish agents. And that's, he loved us. For example, in Galatians 2.20, um, Paul's writing and he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Ephesians 5.2, um, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God. So, so. First, we have to consider that, that Christ, before we ever had any connection to him, he loved us first. And so, so that's certainly unique of Christ. So then when we come to, to, to Christ and, and what happens with, with, with him and with God in that, in that sense, I don't think it's, it's a case that God has simply commanded him to be worshipped, though I think that is the case. Um, what, what I find instead is that God has established that what Christ did for us is worthy of that. And so because of that, he wants him to be um, treated that way. And so when we see, when we go to Philippians chapter two, for example, we see that, that the reason God exalted him is because of what he did. And And, and so would you say, let me, let me ask you this. Um, if if idolatry in the Old Testament is 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 defined as I think that Chris Tilling might say by true relate it's relational you know true relational devotion to uh, to gods other than Yahweh is is what the Old Testament might define as idolatry. Um, if that's if if the if we're not to give that kind of devotion to anybody but Yahweh, uh, what is what is what am I trying to get at here? Um, is is is, let me put it this way: Is dying on the cross for our sins is that's obviously an enormous thing, and I don't mean to minimize it at all. But is that really enough to qualify uh, him as being somebody deserving of the kind of worship that God says we're to give to him? In, in your view, or do, I, I, I don't know. What do you what do you make of that? Well, I think it comes down to to this: Does God? desire for it to be if in fact it's god's will and his his decree that that these things are worthy of that and it is as as we see in philippians 2 uh to the glory of god himself 
that Christ is treated in such a way, then in fact it's part of our our relationship with God and our love of God to treat Christ in the way that He would have Him be treated. Sure, sure, but He could He could I mean theoretically and obviously you know (laughs) obviously hypotheticals only take us so far but but hypothetically I mean He could He could command that and desire that. Uh, we give that kind of worship and have that kind of relationship with somebody who does far less than Jesus did. Could he not? And and if he were to, wouldn't we bound to? Wouldn't we be bound to obey just as much? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, he certainly could, and and we certainly would if we're to, you know to carry out God's will. But but he hasn't. Sure, fair enough. But but you could hopefully you know you might be able to see why it's a little bit why why some of us might be skeptical that uh, that. Ultimately, when all is said and done, the, the, the reason why Christ is to be worshipped in the way that the New Testament com, uh, commands us to do so is really – ultimately just boils down to the fact that that's what God desires and has commanded. Now, granted, um, as you've put it, it, it's his command that we do so and his desire that we do so is based beca- on what it is that Jesus did for us. But since he could have done, hypothetically speaking, anything in order for God to, to command that we worship him in the way that we do – uh, some of us are going to be skeptical that that it would boil down to something like that. To us, it seems to many of us, it seems like worship is um, is, is deserving is, is deserved by somebody because of, by virtue of his nature. Um, so I'll let you have the last word on that before I talk more about Philippians two. Well, I mean, you know, worship is certainly you know deserved you know of God because of 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 who He is of you know you could say of what He is and and of what He's done. Um, you know, in Revelation, for example, chapter four, uh, why is, is is honor and glory given to God? Well, it's because you know He created all things, and because of His will, they exist. So, so you know, there's there's always, though, I think that that active element of of what they've done, and that includes with God. And so, with Christ, I I don't see a conflict there in saying, well, in this case also, we we find what He has done. Um, has made him worthy of that by God's decree. In other words, as I mentioned, God decreeing that that these things make him worthy of that, and so it becomes his will that that Christ is treated in such a way. Okay, now let's talk a little bit more about Philippians two, uh, in part because this is a favorite proof text uh, on the. Uh, or it's a it's a proof text favored by many Trinitarians, uh, but also in part because it's one of the passages that. Chris Tilling, I know, is looking forward to hearing what you have to say. You know, you've pointed out how the passage in the passage Paul says that God has exalted Christ and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name. Uh, but it also appears to many of us, anyway, just before that, to suggest that Christ was God prior to the incarnation, and not counting equality with God something to be clung to. Although I'm aware that most translations say something more like grasped, which might seem to suggest something that somebody reaches out for that they didn't already have. But, you know, for those of us who think it means something more like God, he didn't count his equality with God, something to be clung to, even though it was something that he had in its very nature and then, uh, emptied himself taking the form of a servant. You know, it, it seems to be, uh, something that many of us think strongly points to the fact that he is equal with God and that, uh, and that he condescended to do what it is that he did. How, how would you respond to this when used by Trinitarians as a proof text for, uh, for Christ's divinity? Well, yeah, this is definitely an interesting passage, and it's, it's certainly one of the most difficult, in my opinion, to, to interpret, not s- simply from my position, but 
just because of all the issues that surrounded. I mean, the, the volume of literature on this particular this te- this particular text is vast. I mean, just keeping you know reading all of that is pretty much impossible. And there's so many different views espoused. But um, you know, I, I actually rather like the the translation you mentioned, or something to the effect of that he did not view um, equality with God as something to be taken advantage of, or something to that effect. Um, because you know, in his pre-existence, and, and even in, in, in Jesus and his humanity, I believe that, that Jesus did have a, a, a functional and a, and a legal equality with God as, as his, his agent. Um, so I, I, just, I simply at that point don't see that as an, an ontological thing. Um, you know, when we talk about the form of God in, in the form of a servant, um, form, you know, if we look at, at the, the, the Greek literature from, from the you know, first century and prior, in, in the vast majority of cases refers to the, the outward appearance. And, and, and while it does at times relate to nature, in most cases it simply doesn't. And I don't think that it does in this particular case either. If we think about it, what, what is the form of a servant? Well, we know Jesus became human, but human is not strictly a servant, or, or rather a servant is not strictly human. Even angels are, are servants, hmm. um, but I, I believe you know Jesus as the the Logos, the, the Son of God. He was truly His Son and not not truly a servant. Even when He became human, you know He He is He is at terms called the servant. But you know if you think about it, even Christians are told to be servants to one another. Well, now are we tr- truly in a strict sense each other's servants? No, we're each other's brothers. But it's the that role we take upon ourselves. In serving, and so I believe that that Jesus here took on that role, mm. and so what we see in in Jesus being in, in the form of God and in the form of a servant, you know, the form of God I believe relates specifically to Jesus's Old Testament role as God's principal agent, as the one who appeared for God Himself, and so you know, we maybe will explore First uh, Corinthians chapter ten a little bit, where I see I think we see some examples of, of this from the Old Testament. And then Jesus took the, the form of, of a servant. Outwardly, he appeared as, as a servant. Um, but was he truly a servant in, in an absolute sense? Well, no, he was, he was always God's son. Okay. No, that, that's interesting because I, I have heard um, other people that don't believe that Christ is God in the way that, that I do who will take a different approach to this passage where they would say that um, – well, they, they would just they they would they would differ in in, in their explanation of the passage. But here, you know, you, you are affirming um, of of a sort uh, that 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 this that Jesus existed prior to his incarnation in in such a way that he had uh, the form of God, at least as you understand that. Whereas that's something that I think some other people that don't hold to a divine Christology, you know, they, they would differ in that. You, you mentioned that you wanted to get to 1 Corinthians 10, and, and I'll, I'll start getting us there. But before we do, another passage that Chris wanted to ask you about um, was 1 Corinthians 8. Um, and you know he he uses this passage in, and he did in the in the interview that I gave with him uh, to argue for his uh, his his thesis. Um, maybe you can respond to how he would use this passage as, as evidence for um, a unique uh, relationship, you know, that, that we are to have with Christ, one that that seemingly only God has in the Old Testament. But also maybe you can address. Um, what seems to many of us to be a repurposing of the Shema on Paul's part in, uh, you know, there in verses uh, 
six, well, in verse six, where it says, yet for us, there is one God, the father and one Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe those two things, first of all, uh, Chris Tilling's use of this passage. And second of all, uh, what seems to be Paul's application of the Shema to Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, as, as I've kind of, you know, tried to point out at least is, is I don't disagree, uh, in large part with, with uh, Dr. Tilling's use of, of texts like this to show that relational aspect even with Christ. Um, it's simply the, the conclusion he draws from it, and, and that being really uh, centered in the basis for why Christ is treated as he is. So it's hard for me to, to necessarily respond to something, you know, at least on, at a surface level, I don't really disagree with. Hmm. Um, but at least, you know, with, with coming to, to first Corinthians eight, six, um, you know, I hope I say his, his name, right. Eric Voller, um, in his work. And, and I know, uh, Dr. Chilling, uh, references him, you know, several times, at least in his work and, and so do various others. Um, you know, he, he, and, uh, you know, Larry Hurtado, Richard Bonkham all look, like you said, to, to the, the Shema, uh, for first, what we find in First Corinthians eight six, but but Voller he he notes and and I think even he gets this a little bit wrong uh, that that one what he calls you know terms of mesotext uh, might be uh, Malachi chapter two verse ten, but I don't think that this is simply a mesotext. I think this is actually where Paul's going back to, and and Paul doesn't only here go back to the book of Malachi. He does it also in in chapter ten. And, and I think actually he's looking at Malachi two ten and three one, and and I've not been able to find anyone who who actually discusses the three one aspect of it, but there's a reason why. Um, specifically, the language in First Corinthians eight six has uh, more parallels in Malachi chapter two ten than in Deuteronomy six four. Hmm. For example, um, there is a reference to one God. Which you know, while the term God is used in in the, the Shema, it's not one God. But then God is also called Father in both texts, and then not only that being Malachi chapter two, uh, but not only is he called Father, but then creation is also referenced itself. So it says, uh, "Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us?" So I, I think at this point we see where the the language of of God. And being father in, in his role in creation, but not just creation, I think all things probably is here more encompassing than just creation. But then what's interesting is now we get to, to Jesus as Lord. And this is often, you know, taken back to the Shema. And, and you know, as I've noted, I have no problem with the use of, of the Tetragrammaton in application to Jesus. So here, Kurios is that. But I don't think that's here the case. I think what we actually find is, as Paul now goes to, to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, and, and we have a second figure, the messenger of the covenant, who in, in parallel is also called the Lord. And so why I find this, this convincing is, is one, because of, of course, the, the, the close proximity uh, of Malachi 3.1 and 2.10. The fact that we also have a, a second figure identified as Lord, but then also the reference to him as messenger of the covenant. Here we see um, a role of what, you know, from the context, I would say, is the Old Covenant coming through Jesus in his preexistence. And so this also then would, would encompass under or would encompass the all or part of the all things that came through Christ. So even the covenants are part of what came through Christ. 
And so that's uh, you know, so I don't see that as a, as a reference to the Shema. I see that as much more likely to be a reference to Malachi at this point. Okay, well that's good. That that'll give uh, Chris something to think about and to respond to if 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 he sees uh, this as a connection instead to the Shema in Deuteronomy. But but anyway, going back to the, the first question I had regarding this text, which was. Um, Chris's Dr. Tilling's use of it. I, I really should call him a Dr. Tilling since I don't have a PhD myself. Uh, you know, he, he argues from this passage that the fact that idol worship is connected to or, or associated with, uh, you know, a denial of um, uh, of Jesus Christ, you know, a, a kind of uh, idolatry that would in the Old Testament would only be. Um, uh, it would only qualify as idolatry when it has to do with the denial of God. Uh, you know, it, it just really just explain in the way you already did from your perspective, which is that the fact that God has exalted Christ in the way that he has and given him the, um, the made him deserving of the kind of worship that he has, that that is what accounts for uh, Christ being, having the role that he does in this passage where denying him would be tantamount to idolatry like it would with God in the Old Testament. Well, I think at this point it has to do with the the you know the universal lordship of Christ. Um, you know, Paul tells us in uh, Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse twenty, that that God had seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So at, at this point, you know, looking to these idols in, in any respect is infringing upon Christ's lordship. And so I would see it well encompassed within that. Okay, so now you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about two chapters later, First Corinthians ten, which was which is part of Dr. Tilling's uh, uh, dissertation. Do, what did you want to say about that that you'd like um, you know potentially Chris to respond to? Um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily have anything in particular that he would have to respond to. I just know that you know it, it was a, a topic that we might well get to. Um, there are certainly places within this uh, passage, for example, in, in verse 9, uh, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, of course, having reference to the Old Testament where, where God himself was involved in, you know, I, I see this compassed within divine agency, of course. Um, what I think is a particularly interesting text is, for example, and I, I mentioned this earlier, that that in, uh, in this chapter, uh, of course, now I can't buying the verse. Um, you can, <laughs> I can edit this uh, afterwards. He says, you cannot uh, partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I think that's particularly interesting because, you know, that is a, a reference also to Malachi and also to God. And, and what's particularly interesting is, is there's some disagreement about whether, you know, the Lord here is the father or Jesus. But what I find interesting is that it would seem to me that if Paul is in fact applying this to Jesus, the table of the, of the Lord is no longer in, in reference to um, the table of what was offered to them. But because Christ is our offering, it seems to be more reference to the table which bears him as that offering. And so it, it seems that Paul could actually here be repurposing that passage. Okay. All right, well, there are just maybe one or two more questions I have for you before I let you go and then uh, bring Chris, uh, Dr. Tilling on when, when he's got the opportunity and then publish this conversation as if it were kind of a conversation. Um, you know, what, what the, another question that our friend Mike had, um, I'm going to try to put in my own little bit of a spin on. Uh, it, it seems to me that um, 
your your position relies somewhat heavily, although I'm sure you would you would dispute that it relies exclusively on this, somewhat heavily on uh, the similarities between Jesus and these exalted agents, semi-exalted agents, whatever, uh, that one finds in texts from the Second Temple Judaism period. Um, and, and obviously those parallels exist. But, but what Mike wants to know is, isn't it the differences that really matter? I mean, you, you've already acknowledged that there appears to be some level of cultic devotion offered to Christ in the New Testament that we don't find in the exalted agents. And you've got a, uh, an explanation for why you think that is. There's this, uh, there's this very seeming, uh, seemingly similar form of relational monotheism of, of a sort. You know, the, the, the kinds of relationship that people are to have only with God in the Old Testament are so, in some ways the kinds of relationships that we're only to have with Jesus in the New, well, and God, of course. Uh, th- there's this, there's the, this deep, uh, intimate involvement in creation that Jesus is said to have had in the New Testament that, uh, you know, God attributes only to himself in the Old Testament. I, you know, I, I alone created. Um, from Mike's perspective, this would seem to pretty much make any of the other similarities that Jesus has with Second Temple divine agents irrelevant. Um, you know, we, we seemingly have an entirely new category on our hands. Um, and so I guess that would be the first question I have for you is um, just how do, do the similarities begin to fade into insignificance when one considers just how different Jesus is from these Second Temple Judaism agents? That's a great question, and, and I'm actually really glad you asked it. Kind of, this is how I would answer it. You know, let's put our, ourselves in the shoes of a, a Jew in the first century. And so I, I'm a Jewish believer. I believe in, in, in Jehovah Yahweh. He is my God. Now, uh, again, I, I would argue, and, and, I, and I think most, most scholars uh, tend to agree with this, in that if we look at that time, we don't see that, that the Jews believe that, that God consisted of multiple persons. There was one God who was was one person, and so here I am, a, a Jewish believer, holding this view. Of course, I, I'm probably not even thinking about this at all. I'm not pro- not thinking about whether or not God consists of multiple persons or one person or anything like that. It's not. A, it's most likely not a, not something that's ever even I've ever even pondered. There's simply God, and here's Paul, and he is preaching to me about. This, this, this man, Jesus, who, who preexisted in heaven, who came to earth, who died for our sins, who was resurrected, who God created through, who God saved through, um, who God exalted. And he, is, he exalted him, and now Jesus is, is being treated in a way that, for me, is unparalleled. I've never seen or heard of anyone being treated in such a way. Mm. And, you know, in normal circumstances, this is a a violation of my monotheism. So the question becomes at that point, am I now believing that God, that that the, you could say that the divine identity has been expanded and so that there is a second figure now within that divine identity? Or am I now believing that that God has exalted a figure in a way in which he's never done so before. And it, it's truly unprecedented. And so I, I find that, you know, looking at it from that perspective, far, far more likely. You know, if Paul had come out and, and actually taught that, that Jesus was, you know, as an actual teaching, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, he lays out 
the resurrection. Or in Romans chapter 4 and 5, he lays out salvation by faith. If Paul had actually come out and laid out this doctrine that I'd never heard of before, uh, that would be one thing. But we don't see anywhere in the New Testament that there's this explicit doctrine laid out. So, so being that Jew in the first century, start at, at my own starting point of, of not having this idea of God as, as existing in multiple persons, the question of, you know, where does my theology mutate? Does it mutate in that direction of an expanded divine identity? Or does it mutate in the, in the direction of, of unprecedented exaltation? And I simply find it more convincing that it's that unprecedented exaltation. Well, that, that's a really I'm, – I'm glad that you put it that way and that gives us Trinitarians something to think about and, and, and research more because I'll be honest with you. I, I, I don't agree. I, I don't think that, um, that, uh, it's a, that it's certain or even necessarily likely that the, that the majority of Jews by the time of the first century would have had no concept of uh, multipersonality within, within God. And I'm sure you're familiar with some texts that Trinitarians would point to in the Old Testament. But, but suffice it to say that um, you know there, there's – I think a great deal of research opportunity to do here into um, Jews from the time, you know, the Second Temple, uh, as well as in the the writing of the Old Testament, um, because I would say if it was possible that Jews were at the time open uh, to the idea of multipersonality within God, then I would actually expect things to go the opposite direction that you did. In other words, I would I would think if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a Second Temple Jew who is familiar with the idea of multipersonality, and I see this this human being, uh, you know, devoted, uh, offered devotion and um, relationship, and and said to have been involved in creation in the way that he has, and so forth, in a way that no other agent has. Um, then uh, then I would make the opposite, you know, determination that you did, and and see him as in fact being part of that multi uh, multi personal God. Um, One question I'd have for you, and I'm, sure, I know you're you're questioning me more or less, but um, I, I'd have to ask, you know, you mentioned those, those Old Testament texts that Trinitarians often point to, and I guess I would ask, you know, where in, in Jewish writings of the time did they look to those at, in such a manner? And because it, by and large, I would say that they looked at those passages as, as I do with exalted agents. If we look in, in the writings of the time, if we look even in Josephus and Philo and the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and various other you know, works from the first century and prior, uh, it seems rather consistent that we find those texts that Trinitarians view as showing God to be multiple persons. They're they're generally interpreted uh, in, in light of you know divine agents. Just as an example, in Genesis eighteen and nineteen, where where God is said to appear, uh, you know there there are repeated references to this in 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 various works from the time, and they all see it in light of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Well, well, that's good, and, and I'll I'll pose that question to Chris then if he has any thoughts on it. I'm not uh, versed in this area, uh, and and I'll look forward to what he has to say in response to that question. Um, I, I think it's a relevant one, and I think it's an important question that uh, Trinitarians should uh, should be faced with. So I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, before before I let you go, let me ask you one last question. I think we've got a lot of food for thought here. I think we've got a lot that uh, that Dr. Tilling can um, uh, can can think about and then respond to, and, and hopefully we can continue this conversation even after the episode that gets published that has both what we've been talking about and my conversation with Chris. Um, but as we be, as we wrap up your portion of this conversation, I want to go back, as I said I would, to when you mentioned that um, you have a higher Christology than uh, than you once did. Uh, you know, not lo- around the time that I published my interview with Chris Tilling, 
he published on his Facebook page what I thought was a funny meme. Uh, it, you know, it had uh, Doctor Evil from the Austin Powers series doing the. I the, saw that. Yeah, the scare quotes, and and he said, you know, uh, I have a a high Christology, and the high was in quotes. I think it was, and it was attributed to sort of Dunn's um, uh, view of of uh, Christology, which I I would say is somewhat similar to yours. I, so I guess the question I have for you is, for those who. Uh, for those of, of us Trinitarians who might think that your Christology is not high enough to do justice to uh, the way that the New Testament describes Jesus and the kind of relationship we're to have with him and so forth, uh, how would you respond? Do you think that there might be any sense in which your Christology is as high as, as it ought to be, higher maybe than, than we think it is, or maybe even higher than the Christology we claim to have? Um, well, I don't, I don't see how it would be necessarily higher than, than you know, the Christology you claim to have. I don't, I don't see how that, that could be. But I guess what I would ask is what, you know, in what way are you treating Jesus differently than I do? And I don't think that there is a way. Well, that would, that would only be true. I think if you exclude from the word, from what it means to treat him uh, a certain way, if you exclude from that, what it means to believe about him. Right. I mean, uh, as somebody who believes that he's God himself, I would think that there that I there is just in that by virtue of that alone, there would be a way in which I treat him differently, even if you pray to him, even if you worship him, and so forth. But I imagine if I interpreted the way you phrased it correctly, uh, that's precisely what you mean: is that whatever the differences between what we believe about Jesus Christ, how we treat him, the kind of relationship that we seek to have with him, and so forth, is is the same. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, you know, I lied. I do have one more question for you, just just to get <laughs> controversial, okay. um, and then I will I, I will seriously let you go. Uh, this question is often asked of Trinitarians, um, but I'm going to pose it to you. Uh, Trinitarians are often asked in this context. Um, you know, do we see uh, a denial of Jesus' divinity, uh, true divinity, you know, ontological tr- uh, divinity, as being something that is damnable, to put it mildly? You know, uh, is is it something that um, is it something that indicates that somebody isn't truly saved, or is it something that is worthy of? Uh, is, is it something that uh, precludes one from truly being saved, and so forth? You know, and, and uh, many of us would say yes uh, for whatever reasons that we might offer. One might say, for example, that if Jesus is in fact God, and we're denying that He's God, um, or if we're offering worship to somebody that we think that, that we uh, that we know that we claim to know isn't in fact God, or for whatever reason, we would think that um, it would be something that would be damnably improper. Um, the question I have for you is if, if, if we Trinitarians are attributing a nature and ident- an identity to a, what is, to, to what is just an exalted agent, I, I should use the word just, but you catch my drift. To, if we're offering, if, if we believe and are claiming that this created being is in fact almighty God, do you see anything dangerous, uh, on our part? Do you, w- would you question whether or not we are in fact, um, in uh you know tr- truly secure in our salvation from that alone no certainly not um you know first of all um uh, you know we are all fallible you know there, there there is absolutely an intellectual aspect to this um and, and so you know and this is not to take away from the holy spirit's role at all but because of the fact that we are all fallible i mean how many other theological things do we disagree on you know, not you and I per se, but just anyone. 
Um, and, and so, you know, at the end of the day, because I don't see the treatment of, of Jesus as being any different in, in that capacity, um, I, I don't see a particular issue there. Okay. Well, I've really appreciated your time. I, I said I was going to do this at the beginning, and, and I will. Where can our listeners go to find you online, and what's the name of your book, and how can they get a copy of it, and so forth? Yeah, uh, my website is scripturaltruths.com, and, and the, the book is there. You, can, there. you know, There's a print edition available. I actually give the PDF away for free. Um, as I said, though, it was published in 2009, and I've been working subsequently on what will really be a vastly expanded second edition. I've actually revised, you know, even some of my positions from the time of that publication. Uh, some of which I've discussed um, online in the in, in my blog, and and even some of it came up in the debate with Dr. Fernandez, and even here today. Um, but that, um, I am working on that second edition, so hopefully one of these days I, I will get it done, and uh, and, and hopefully it'll uh, you know contribute something to the discussion further. And if they have um, any questions for you, do, do you at that website that you just gave, is there a way that they can contact you? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's, a, there's a contact link there or you know, my email address is dave at scripturaltruths.com. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Now we'll turn next to uh, Dr. Chris Tilling. Thanks so much for coming back and having this dialogue with Dave Barron. I really appreciate you being here today. Real honor. Uh, thank you for the time you have spent uh, um, discussing my work. Um, and Dave, in particular, thank you for the amount of time that you've spent engaging with my book, uh, Paul's Divine Christology, reading it, thinking about it. Uh, you know what I mean when I say it's always a kick for an author to know that they are being read, mm. even if critically. Um, it's uh, So thank you very much for that. Mm. Uh, please do, by the way, call me Chris. Uh, I don't need to be called Dr. Tilling or anything like that. I don't, you know, I hear Dr. Tilling heard and, and I have to take two and, oh, you mean me. So it's just Chris. <laughs> That's superb for me. Probably worth mentioning. Um, there's the proverb, Proverbs 18, that says, the one who first states a case seems right until the other comes and cross-examines. And that's exactly what's happening here. Dave has spoken first. I'm coming on second. So that puts me at an unfair advantage. Mm. Um, So for uh, further um, discussion, I do refer to Dave's blog and any responses that he posts there to what I'm about to say. Yeah, definitely. I'll encourage uh, our listeners to do that as well. Uh, now, to maybe kick this half, approximately, of the discussion off, uh, why don't you start by giving us, summarizing for us, the positive case that you make in your thesis, Paul's Divine Christology, um, the positive case that you lay out uh, for those of our listeners that can't afford the, the $100 or whatever that it costs to, to purchase your book. Okay. My constructive case, then, I if we're going to uh, understand Paul's Christology, particularly whether it is divine or not. Uh, We need to meet certain explanatory conditions, and there's no Gnosticism here or higher knowledge. This is common sense. This is the work of of historians engaged in in the task of understanding ancient texts, and it's also uh, a theological task as well, appropriate to reading scripture. Yeah. Um, one, uh, the first explanatory condition that needs to be met when, when proposing a divine Christology is to account for the nature of monotheism. Uh, Chris, I think you, um, you re- represented me well. You spoke about relational monotheism, which is a phrase I use uh, a lot in, in my work. 
um, wasn't entirely um, uh, on the ball to say that it's about worship um, and uh, that, that it's in worship that the unique transcendence of God is is um, is maintained. I think that's a part of it, but uh, the, the issue of relational monotheism is that it's much broader than that and cultic worship, but involves a pattern of other issues. Mm. Uh, I don't mean by that um, uh, something akin to Larry Hurtado, where uh, cultic worship is is the uh, decisive criterion uh, by which we distinguish the unique tra- transcendence of God. I think that's involved in the matter, but I think that the issue is is broader than that. Hmm. Uh, so I wouldn't like to simply speak in terms of worship when it comes to defining the transcendent uniqueness of God. Um, in fact, maybe I should back up and say that, look, there are four rough different options for understanding monotheism. Okay, on the one hand, you've got someone like Margaret Barker and, and others who will say, first century Jewish monotheism didn't exist, essentially. Uh, but they are in a vast minority. And then you have a, a, a second group, and these guys are also a minority, uh, but um, they're worth mentioning. They will say, look, first century Jewish monotheism, yes, monotheism is, is an appropriate word, but the monotheism wasn't exclusive. There wasn't a hard line between God and everything else. Uh, there was a blurry line between God and everything else. Um, for example, uh, Jewish and Zionism and the Cult of Christ, written by William Horbury, uh, and others, uh, uh, the articles that he's produced um, support this particular view. Um, in, in essence, uh, he, he wants to suggest that uh, uh, that monotheism is inclusive, that the that God was envisaged as above, but in association with other spirits and powers, and so he sees hmm. the 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 language of intermediary figures and angels and and other spiritual beings as in some way refuting a notion of exclusive monotheism. Um, but this hasn't caught on, and rightly so. Uh, um, Richard Borkham is one scholar who has, I think, um, laid that sort of uh, position to rest. Uh, but I mean, if, if we define monotheism uh, as uh, the denial of the existence of any other heavenly beings besides God, then there wasn't any ever uh, ever any monotheism until the modern period. Right. Uh, traditional monotheism in, in of, of the Jewish and Christian varieties, and of course Islamic as well. Uh, have all accepted the existence of supernatural beings and angels and such like, so none of them would be uh, exclusive monotheistic religions according to uh, William Horbury's definition. Um, that the key issue is to understand how was God's transcendent uniqueness understood over against all other intermediary figures and angels and such like. Um, which brings me to the final two ways of understanding uh, monotheism, um, and that would be uh, um, uh, one that Anthony Harvey would represent, and I think Dave Barron as well, at least if I understand the logic of his argument. They'd say, look, monotheism exclusive is exclusive, absolutely right, but that means divine Christology is therefore excluded as well, mm. uh, that, that the God's oneness uh, is is such that to include Christ in the divine identity, to use Richard Borkham's language, um, would be to violate that monotheism, and and so is uh, is 
not appropriate description of of New Testament or Pauline in particular Christology. Uh, a fourth view, however, wants to take the argument another step and say yes, monotheism is is exclusive, and yes, God is one. But we need to read the evidence inductively, and this is Larry Hurtado's. Um, most helpful point in this regard, I think, that uh, here we have a group of people confessing the oneness of God, and yet they could also include um, uh, this Jesus Christ um, next to God. Right. Um, and so we need to take them at their own word on this and believe that they are monotheists and, and allow for uh, an exclusive monotheism that includes Jesus in what God is. I mean, this isn't the language that Larry uses, but his argumentative dynamic is what is crucial here, that we need to read the evidence uh, inductively. Hmm. Um, and that is what leads me to my own particular uh, perspective on these matters, because I want to ask then, how was God's transcendent uniqueness distinguished from other divine beings. And this is what brings me into the fourth camp, because I see evidence in Paul that his Christology is fully divine, and I, I also affirm an exclusive monotheism. But mm. what I see as central to the Jewish texts of the, first, uh, sorry, of the Second Temple period, all of them, is a pattern of language uh, that spoke of a unique relationship between Israel and um, Adonai, the one God. As uh, Nathan MacDonald, the brilliant Old Testament scholar, argued that the primary significance of, of the Shema, which was the closest thing, by the way, that Second Temple Judaism had to a creed, mm. he said the primary significance of the Shema is the relationship between Adonai and Israel. Adonai is to be Israel's one and only. Right. I think that's absolutely crucial for understanding Second Temple Jewish monotheism. And of course, the New Testament uh, scholar who Dave mentioned, Eric Valler, he argues um, uh, that uh, the Shema plays a very important role in Paul's um, uh, argumentation, certainly in 1 Corinthians. And he notes, look, for Paul to know that God is the only God, or that he is one, and here I'm quoting uh, Vala, implies that one relates to one God only. Implies that one relates to one God only. Hmm. Um, and this, this understanding of, of monotheism as uh, relationally understood uh, is, of course, what we find rather significantly in, in Paul. Uh, uh, Jimmy Dunn uh, argued that for Paul to know God is to be known by him, a two-way relationship of acknowledgement and obligation, I mean, Galatians 4.9. And, and this, this knowledge of God um, is, is uh, going to be important for understanding monotheism, our first explanatory condition. We see this kind of monotheism or faith in God, this expression of faith in God elsewhere in Paul, First uh, Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine, and Second Corinthians six sixteen, and so on. And there are lots of passages: Galatians four, Romans one. And my claim simply is, and this builds on the work of of uh, Old Testament uh, theologies. 
Um, many, most of them would affirm this point, and also work done on the wider literature of Second Temple Judaism is to say that all uh, Jewish monotheistic rhetoric was conceived in re uh, relational uh, language and relational categories. So this is my claim. If faith in God was so expressed, it is sensible to think that God's transcendent uniqueness was also understood in relational terms. Sure. And this is indeed what we find in the literature, and this is what I argue a little in, in Paul's Divine Christology. Uh, you'd have all kinds of other figures, uh, intermediary figures, some who are who are worshipped uh, while sitting on a throne, like the the strange figure, the Son of Man, um, in the similitudes of Enoch, being the most important. Um, uh, but um, and Dave Barron mentions many others besides uh, uh, exalted language given to a host of of other intermediary figures, whether it be. Melchizedek or Moses being called God, uh, and I also add Paul in Second Corinthians four four can speak of presumably it's Satan as the God of this world. Mm. I, I never understand why people get so hung up on on Theos as as a title. You know, for us English language uh, uh, guys, you know, if we we just capitalize G God, we have got it right. There's right. God. Uh, but that's not, it's not so simple in Second Temple Judaism. Other figures could be called the God, and, um, and that's crucial. And other figures could be worshipped. Yeah. And other p figures uh, uh, had, uh, were described in incredibly exalted ways with the na divine name dwelling in them and so on. So what is it that distinguishes the transcendent uniqueness of the one God of Israel from these various figures? Uh, to remain faithful to the claim that Jewish monotheism is exclusive, of, as I believe uh, the evidence uh, um, strongly um, makes us do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is where we find a way uh, in the text, a relational way of distinguishing the transcendent uniqueness of God. That they, it's uh, the relation to God pattern in all of these texts, whether it be in the Old Testament or whether it be in the various other Second Temple texts, whether it be from Qumran or wherever else, um, the, the God relation is described in a typical way. Um, it would involve expressions of a human's ultimate goals and motivations, ultimate goals and most motivations. It would describe uh, this relation to the one God in, in, with passionate language in involving the whole life of, of the Israelite of, or Israel. The, the entire religio-ethical commitment um, would be orientated to this one God. It, it would contrast this uh, uh, devotion um, in typical ways, using certain language to, dis to describe what it is to not be committed to the one God of Israel. Um, it would speak of the presence of God experienced through the Spirit, as well as the absence of God, which would tend to evoke tremendous existential yearning for the presence of God. There would be a variety of communications between God and Israel and the individual Israelites, personal and corporate. It would include um, uh, all of these things and characterize God in habitual ways. Now, the name of God would often change. It would be Lord of the Spirits and the similitudes of Enoch or, or whatever else in different texts. But this relation 
to God with, with different emphases and different names, in, incorporating um, uh, uh, all of these things, constituted this unique pattern of language describing relation to uh, Adonai. God alone uh, existed in relation to Israel in this way. And this is the same whether in First Enoch, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Paul, doesn't matter. Right. No intermediary figure um, was understood in, in these ways. So if faith in God was expressed relationally, the transcendent uniqueness of, uh, of God was understood relationally as well as we see from all of the texts. Yeah. Uh, that's... Um, so that's the first explanatory condition that we're going to have to meet in order to explain Paul's Christology, the nature of monotheism. It's going to need to accord with this. Right. And uh, if anything is going to be said against that, of course, then an awful lot of work needs to be done in, in rewriting the vast majority of Old Testament theologies and work on intertestamental uh, um, uh, monotheism. The second uh, explanatory condition uh, that I would suggest is important for understanding Paul's Christology, and remember this is all part of my my wider constructive case, is, sure. is epistemology, Paul's way of knowing. And this is this is crucial. I mean, Dan argues this, and I think he's a little... He, he says something like, look, look, in Greek thought, the term to know denoted rational perception, but the Hebrew concept embraced embrace the knowing of, of personal relationship. I think that's a slight false either or here. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd still affirm the basic point. Knowing was about personal relationship, uh, certainly um, as a trend. Um, in Scott's classic study uh, uh, would affirm this, as uh, do the most recent works as well by Healy and Parry and others. Um, I think it was Scott who spoke of knowledge of God as as passionate devotion to Adonai. Mm. And um, Paul spoke um, of the knowledge of God, says uh, Mary Healy, as harmonious relationship with the Creator. Um, in order to understand my point here, um, ask yourself, how do we know theological truth? Mm. Now, it tends to involve, for many of us, digging the right set of boxes next to a set of prepositions, you know, sentences on a page. Mm. But for Paul, theological truth involved a living relationship with God and Jesus. If this was missing, so was the truth. This is crucial for understanding Paul's way of knowing, his epistemology. And uh, if we are going to speak um, of Paul's Christology, this needs to be borne in mind. Mm. These two explanatory conditions then help us to better grasp the nature or the import of Paul's own language. And of course, of course this could also be called an explanatory condition, namely the language Paul uses, uh, the dominant language. Um, but where have we got to now? I want to suggest that if we're going to understand whether Paul's Christ is divine, we're not even simply asking whether Paul's Christ is on the divine side of the line which monotheism must draw between God and creatures, although I fair enough and includes that, I suppose. <laughs> Rather, it should run as follows. This is the question. Is the pattern of language which describes the relation between Jesus and his followers, or, or Christ and the church, analogous to or different from Israel's unique relation to Adonai? Hmm. I mean, this gets us to the heart of the matter, right. and I think entirely accords with Paul's monotheism, 
and way of knowing, his epistemology. And these two explanatory conditions then dovetail nicely with um, issues in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Yeah, and after I sent you the um, the recording that I had done with Dave, uh, you reminded me that I, I accidentally um, asked Dave not quite the correct question about this passage, right? I mean, you wanted I, I asked him about First Corinthians eight verse six, and and you actually wanted to know uh, you wanted him to respond to a, a broader passage than that, isn't that right? Yeah, Chris, uh, Chris you asked you asked uh, Dave about First um, Corinthians eight to six. What I what I really wanted clarified however was was first corinthians 8 through to 10 in other words the entire sweep of the argument and and not just that isolated verse but that verse in the context of of um that entire discourse relating to um uh food offered to idols Mm. well i am sorry about that uh you know since we hopefully will be doing a round two how about i just ask you now kind of elaborate on um, you know, the issues that you think are involved in this passage, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. What I suggest is in 1 Corinthians 8 10, I'll turn there now. <laughs> Paul starts his argument in the first three verses by framing all that will follow um, about concerning food sacrifice to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Um, he's probably citing the, the Corinthian knowledgeable at this point. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's already correcting the knowledgeable. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. So he's speaking about epistemology here. But anyone who loves God is known by him. Hmm. Here we have this relational monotheism, also in terms of relationalist epistemology, all in one here. Hence, as to the eating of food sacrificed, uh, food offered to idols, this is then picking up from uh, verse 1 in verse 4, capitulating the, uh, uh, I mean, framing the entire argument in terms of those first few verses, um, Paul again debates with some of these Corinthian knowledgeable uh, in these verses, uh, who were affirming that um, there is no idol in the world, that um, there is only one God, and they were using these theological propositions in order to justify behavior which was damaging to weaker Christians, and this is what infuriated Paul, Hmm. uh, because they, they are not only uh, damaging other Christians, they are radically misunderstanding the nature of monotheism because uh, monotheism is, is um, reframed, as he goes into verse 6, uh, as, as yet for us, perhaps this is a relational dative, there is one God, the Father, and, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, and so on. Uh, we'll come back to the issue of Deuteronomy or, or Malachi um, later on. Incidentally, I thought that was a very interesting point. Um, yeah. Not at all persuasive for reasons I'll give later on, but sure. um, I really enjoyed engaging with that particular issue. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, then what Paul does, you'd expect, remember the context is idolatry here, and the context has been reframed in terms of relational monotheism and understood in terms of its uh, Uh, epistemological corollary Paul then goes on to speak not about the relationship between these Corinthian Christians and God over against idolatry but the relation between uh, these Corinthian Christians and the risen Christ Hmm. over against idolatry and Paul describes this Christ relation 
using the language that many Old Testament and particularly Pentateuchal texts use to describe Israel's relation to Yahweh, remembering the nature of the explanatory conditions of monotheism and epistemology. This is Jewish Christian uh, Christology in the making here. Uh, this is this is what is going on. Um, so Paul uh, in in eight six. Um, uh, echoing the uh, Jewish Shema and uh, elsewhere uh, against sinning against Christ and I go into all of these issues in my book sure. after the um, uh, digressio or digression uh, of chapter 9 most scholars see the argument picked up in chapter 10 uh, where again Paul is really explicit that he's he's understanding the relation between Christ and the church um, via intertext, via scripture reading, as it is written, he will say, um, in terms of the relation between Israel and um, and Adonai, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, and so on, up through to verse 21, and, and with much in between. Uh, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the cup of the Lord and the cup of table of demons. So, uh, sorry, table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And the Lord in all of these verses so far has been uh, Christ and God has been spoken God, as God the Father. Um, so it's most likely Christ being referred to here. And all of this is, is um, echoing language that we find in Deuteronomy 6 where, and, and many other passages uh, besides which speak of the relation between Israel and and the one Lord. Mm. Um, now, what what is particularly fascinating, I think, is is this is just the start. You know, for Paul's Christology, this is just an example of something we find in almost every single chapter of every single letter that we have mm. of Paul's letters. If we were to trace the contours of the relation between the risen Lord and Christians in Paul's letters, a pattern emerges, one which looks an awful lot like the relation between uh, Israel and Adonai. Mm. And, and remember, this is uh, the way God's transcendent uniqueness was conceived right. in these texts. Paul describes this relation, this same, uh, uh, in the same way, the relationship with the risen Lord and Christians. I mean, this is theologically significant. So Paul would often speak of Christ as present and active in and amongst the churches, and, and this by the Holy Spirit. And, and here, of course, I refer to the brilliant Medad Fatehi's work, the Spirit's relation to the risen Lord, uh, in Paul. Um, but just as in Jewish theology, God was uh, present and active, and only God was present and active by the Spirit, so also God was absence was was known, and and this Christ's relation to the church is expressed in exactly the same way. Um, uh, Paul prays to the risen Lord, expecting that Christ can and will answer, and you know the three times removing thorn in the flesh, you know Second Corinthians twelve. Um, uh, but Christ's absence also uh, evokes this existential longing uh, for Christ. And Philippians chapter 1 is perhaps most poignant. I, that Paul speaks of his desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is better by far, better than life itself. I mean, this reflects language that you find in Psalm 63, or at least the Passion is analogous. You know, God, you are my God, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, and so on and so forth. Um, but 
But Paul expresses devotion to Christ in ways that evoke Israel's earnest relationship with God. Second Corinthians 11 is famous, this divine jealousy, for I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by its cunning, your thoughts will be led away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Mm. Or Philippians 3, he exclaims, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in all that I may gain Christ. And I could go on. Verse after verse in Paul's letters could be referenced, where Christ is associated with Paul's ultimate goals and hopes, where devotion to Christ is uh, uses language that was reserved for the one God of Israel. And, And that devotion is contrasted with the kinds of things uh, Jews constru- contrasted with devotion to God. Yeah. Christ is characterized as loving and merciful and so on, just as God was characterized. In other words, we have here uh, a pattern and an existential reality as well, which corresponds only with Israel's relation to the one God. This is used to describe the church's relationship uh, with Christ. Now, this is really where, then, the rubber hits the road. Sure. The way Second Temple Judaism understood, understood God as unique through the God-relation pattern was used by Paul to express the pattern of data concerning the Christ relation. Right, yeah. What, what is this to say? This is a very Jewish-Christian way of saying that Jesus isn't merely an exalted being, nor even just some kind of divine God. It is saying... Uh, in such a manner that corresponds entirely with uh, the explanatory conditions that I outlined, that Jesus is on the divine side of the line, that Jesus is, as other New Testament scholars would say, included in the divine identity. And these conclusions, crucially, are grounded on dozens of Pauline texts. Paul's Christ is therefore fully divine, sharing the transcendent uniqueness of the one God of Israel. And if this case is to be refuted, then an awful lot of texts need to be explained away. And all I can say is, is good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I hear you. You know, one of the things that um, at your prompting I asked uh, Dave to talk about was Philippians 2. Uh, You know, that's a a passage uh, that many Trinitarians have used where uh, Jesus is said to have existed in the form of God, you know, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to or whatever, and so he uh, emptied himself and, and so forth. You had a chance to listen to what Dave said about Philippians 2. What are your thoughts in response? Uh, I made a point in my thesis of not doing much exegesis of Philippians chapter 2, and I was delighted to hear that he was humble enough, Dave was humble enough to say, look, this is a very complicated passage, and so it's difficult to be sure what's going on. It's poetic language. I entirely agree, and I liked his reading an awful lot. Um, uh, my point in my thesis in not engaging with Philippians 2 is, look, New Testament scholars classically are obsessed with this passage. <laughs> and, and, and as Dave pointed out, the, uh, the secondary literature is, is overwhelming. I think um, uh, uh, his, Dave's reading of Philippians 2 was, was um, entirely appropriate, and I'll get on to looking at um, his emphasis shortly on, on, on this universal uh, obedience before Christ being offered to the glory of God the Father. 
Uh, absolutely. Um, the one issue uh, that I made in my thesis in relating to Philippians 2 is that the wider context needs to be borne in mind. Mm. We have chapters around Philippians 2 which contain Christology. Remember, if we, if we include those uh, explanatory conditions in our thinking so that our, our, our thinking and our, and our exegesis isn't anachronistic as it so easily can be um, uh, then Christology in Philippians chapter 1, this existential longing this, uh, well, this term, the Philippians um, uh, uh, I mean there's so much in here sure. uh, being servants of Christ and speaking of the day of Christ uh, longing for them with the bowels of Christ. I mean, this is all very significant language. Um, but um, also knowing that it's through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that Paul's, Paul will be delivered. That, and his longing is that Christ will be exalted now as always in his body, whether by life or death. And then he goes on to speak this incredible line about would rather to depart and be with Christ. Um, all of this is in chapter 1 of Philippians. And, and then in uh, after the Philippians him uh there is uh uh so much we could go into um philippians chapter three uh where this knowledge of christ knowing christ um using language that um uh, kopelski describes as, as a very high christology this is beyond high this is divine christology uh it is uh a part of that pattern of God language. Remember, pattern. Uh, not just individual, isolated little bits of uh, mildly in, uh, informative <laughs> theology. This is right. part of a pattern, an explanatory um, uh, strategy for understanding the whole of this language in ways that avoid anachronism. And I could go on. Uh, you'd find the same in, at the end of chapter 3, where Christ's power enables him to subject things to himself. Uh, we're to rejoice in the Lord in chapter 4, and uh, and he can do all things um, through him who strengthens him and uh, oh goodness uh, mm -hmm. the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit at the very end so much in Philippians yeah. and my point is simply in order to rightly understand Philippians 2 all of this needs to be borne in mind and I think it is very likely then that what we have with the Harpagmos indeed is as, and I agree with Dave here uh, although I'm, you know, I'm, I'm open to be corrected on this. I'm not overly committed on this particular reading, but I think it's a sensible one that it's because Christ is divine he pours out his life for others. Um, he, he, he evidences what divinity is in dying on the cross, hmm. this utter uh, self-giving love. And so God publicly vindicates and recognizes this in in giving his name to Jesus Christ. Um, I would like to speak a little bit about giving the name perhaps later on if, uh, if I get the chance. True. Um, uh, the issue is often about publicly vindicating or publicly acknowledging in naming, um, which I think is an important dynamic to bear in mind um, there. I, I wonder, one, one of the things that convinces me of that passage being uh, one that presents a divine Christ is that Jesus is said to be exhibiting humility that we're to emulate by not th not considering equality with God something to be clung to or something to be grasped onto. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't seem to me that anybody but God could be exhibiting humility by not attempting to cl cling to equality with God, right? I mean, yeah. if I were to, if I were to not, not uh, deem equality with God something to be clung to, that wouldn't be humility. That would be reality. 
Mm, um, yeah. I, I wonder if you if you see that as as a support for this being a divine. It, it, could could there be any sense in which Christ could be said to be humble by not considering himself uh, or, or not not clinging to equality with God, unless in fact he is equal with God? Yeah. Well, I'll get the Greek up. Hang on. Let me just open up my New Testament. Um, the the only um, the, the the key issue here. So if I were to go to six, yeah. I mean, the, the equality with God, this, I mean, this, this is presupposed as is the, you know, the humility in light of, in light of that equality with God. But the key question revolves around the translation of this word, apagmos. And if, if it is, um, uh, being taken advantage of, you know, taking advantage of, uh, as, as an idiom, using it as an idiom, um, then your reading and your suggestion there works fine. And it's one I happen to agree with as well. Um, as does uh, Tom Wright and Hoover and uh, I think Borkham. Um, but um, but others, of course, as you know, read it in a different way. That particular verb. Um, this uh, sorry, uh, I mean harpagmos. Mm-hmm. Um, as um, uh, um, uh, uh, as something to be grasped for. Um, yeah, I always see what you mean. You're saying so even if it's grasped for. How would it be humble of Christ? Yeah, even if it's grasped for. Yeah, unless he's God. Because if he's not yeah. God, then it's not humble to refuse yeah. to grasp equality with God. That's just being re- real. It's being it's a, it's a, recognizing what reality is and the distinction between God and creation. I see. Oh yeah. Uh, um, I I like that. I suppose someone might come back and say, "Well, but we're meant to emulate this." And so this is given as a model for humans. Ah, but like, that's but exactly. But whom are we to with whom are we to emulate this kind of humility yeah, our fellow yeah. our fellow humans in other words very nice yeah so I, i'm very nice point i like that i think um that's a very interesting point i'm gonna have to ponder that one i mean I, the, the difficulty with psalm 2 is it's very poetic the language and difficult to nail down philippians 2 you in mean. terms of its uh its theology um, but what I think it's what you're doing there is entirely consistent with the kind of divine Christology we see elsewhere in Philippians. I mean, my point was um, Philippians two can be variously understood. I think most likely in terms of divine Christology, uh, uh, but that if you, if you were to just isolate it, you know, take it out of the letter and try to understand it on its own terms. But when you put it into Philippians chapters 1, 2, 3, you know, 4, you really try to understand everything that's going on in that letter, then a divine Christology is, is the most appropriate conclusion to draw, I think. So I think, yeah, that would, that would tie it in nicely with the rest of Philippians. Okay. Well, nice one. I like well, that. Well, ponder it and then, you know, get back to me and let me know. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. This, maybe this will come up again in round two if we have one. Well, maybe, yes. I mean, Phil- the, the really great um, piece of work you know, I, I didn't like Gordon Fee's book, um, Pauline Christology, that much, but um, his exegesis of Philippians 2 is the highlight of the whole book, mm. and, and um, he will undoubtedly cover some of these possibilities uh, there. Although what I like about your reading is it's really thematic, isn't it? You're, you're engaging with the ideas involved rather than just getting caught in the debates relating to the syntax and the, the, you know, the, the semantics of individual words. I, I like that. Well, yeah. I appreciate I'll, I'll that. It, yeah. 
yeah, just just for the record, this has, this idea isn't original with me. <laughs> uh, I don't know where I heard it from, but a, a lot of uh, a lot of Trinitarian apologists I've heard have made this point, or at least a few have. Hey. Um, so I won't take credit for it, but I but I will say, like I said, I I can't conceive of how we're to emulate this kind of humility with our fellow human beings with whom we're in fact equal, but we're to treat as though we're not, you know, uh, unless Jesus is equal with the God whom he treated as if he was not equal. Um, So anyway, now you already talked about the issues that you see in play in first Corinthians chapters eight through 10. And, uh, you know, and I apologized for um, only asking him about first Corinthians Chapter eight, verse six. Um, you know, she so already talked about that, but but you know, the question I had asked him was, what does he make of verse six's seeming uh, allusion to, or repurposing of, or co-opting of the Shema from Deuteronomy? And you had a chance to listen to to Dave. Uh, what, what do you have to say in response to that? This is a highlight uh, for me, um, namely um, that we should understand eight six not in terms of the Shema. Uh, but in terms of Malachi, right. uh, particularly 2.10 and, and 3.1, uh, which he says Malachi has more parallels and so is, is to be um, um, more important. And, uh, and what happens then is, is uh, we see a distinction between uh, God in Malachi and the messenger uh, in 3.1. And then Dave suggests that this is an intermediary figure, an exalted figure, and that's how Paul can incorporate such high language of Christ in the forthcoming argument, because he's already, uh, I mean, if I'm understanding him rightly, he's already uh, intimated that this is this is an agent, divine agent language, um, because of the intertext with Malachi. Mm. Um, now, uh, first, uh, I would say... Of course, Dave knows this. The vast majority of scholars would say that uh, Deuteronomy is the most important uh, intertext here, and for good reason. Um, I mean, there's, of course, lots of issues involved that parallel um, thematically, as with Malachi, uh, such as love, um, which is important in the framing at the beginning uh, in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 8, uh, also, idolatry, explicit in 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 Deuteronomy. Um, I'm, in fact, I'm going to turn to to Deuteronomy uh, in order to elaborate a little bit on on those uh, uh, important intertexts. Because when New Testament scholars are looking for the significance of intertexts, it isn't simply random themes. Um, <laughs> but the language that is used and how uh, they are echoed. And if you have explicit citations uh, or or something very close to that, that makes uh, the importance of an intertext that much more significant. Mm. Um, And what we find in in Deuteronomy 6, of course, is uh, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, Uh, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Um, Then after saying you should be bound on your forehead and write them on your doorposts and so on. It goes on in verse 10. When the Lord your God brought you into the land and he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, to give you a land with fine, large cities and all of these wonderful things are listed. And we're, we're to verse 12 now. Take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord your God you shall fear him shall you serve 
and by his name alone shall you swear. Do not follow any gods, other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who are all around you, because of the Lord your God who is present with you is a jealous God. The anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you from the face of the earth. Now this, of course, is evoking passages in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm, I'm thinking here uh, of uh, 2021. Um, next verse in Deuteronomy 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And, and uh, this, of course, reflects 10.9 in 1 Corinthians. I mean, these are pretty explicit hmm. echoes, not just thematic correspondence. Um, and it goes on as well that Pharaoh and the uh, um, coming out of Egypt and and uh, and this will reflect language at the beginning of First Corinthians ten as well. In other words, the vast major- majority of scholars see this as uh, evoking a complex of intertexts in that particular passage. So that's one reason why I think it's more significant than Malachi. Yeah, but also because this text was prayed twice daily. By uh, and not just not just the Shema. So Shema isn't just uh, um, uh, "Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." It it, it goes on to include uh, the rest of this uh, passage and and uh, Numbers eleven and other passages. Uh, it's uh, sorry, not Numbers eleven, Numbers fifteen, and a number of other uh, passages repeated twice daily in prayer uh, by Jews, probably in the first century. In other words, this was a very live text mm. uh, in their mind for matters of faithfulness to the one God of Israel. Um, this is not to say that other texts aren't in play. Of of course, uh, lots of other texts are in play. Um, uh, from Exodus 32 and Numbers 11 and Numbers 21 and Numbers 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 1 and, and languages it's mediated through uh, some Psalms as well, uh, Psalm 106. Um, but the question is, are there, uh, is there a better fit with, with Malachi here? Um, well, for the reasons that I've already listed, uh, um, no. there are good reasons why scholars don't think this is the case. Yeah. Uh, but also, I wanted to pick on, on Dave's jumping to 3.1 as then controlling, uh, where a messenger is mentioned. Um, uh, uh, and this then controls his understanding of 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, I find is most un- implausible. Um, you see, most tend to see, uh, for, for these reasons, most tend to see a new theme in Malachi starting in 2.17. Uh, at the moment, there's been a theme of coming judgment and and, and uh the infidelity of the priests and so on and it and it's not just modern scholars who see thematic development here in other words you don't just smoothly go from 210 to 31 in malachi mm. then in malachi 31 the messenger angelos is is spoken of and if if we are to understand um and paul used uh, uh um something like the Septuagint, and that was the Bible that was used, not the Hebrew, uh, I, I, I must emphasize here. Um, uh, but notice how Paul uses angelos in 1 Corinthians, immediately adjacent to, to, these, to this passage. In 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? We're judging angels. Uh, or if in 1 Corinthians 11, for this reason a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of plural, the angels. 
you know this is this this is the word used of the messenger in in um, Malachi three one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's stretching the plausibility beyond uh, the weight it can bear to suggest that Paul then under would have expected people to pick up Malachi as an its text over against Deuteronomy. And, and then jump to 3.1 as controlling for understanding Christ's language as it developed. Yeah. In fact, if you want to understand um, uh, Christ's language, compare how God is spoken of, the God relation in Malachi. I mean, I'll leave you to do this, but have a look <laughs> at the God relation language in Malachi. You know what it's going to look like? The Christ relation language in, in, in Paul. Oh, by the way, as well, you notice at the end of Malachi, I mean, this famous passage where... Uh, this is, I will send my mess. I will send you the prophet Elijah uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And of course, uh, in in early Christianity, these passages uh, were taken to refer to John the Baptist as the apostle, and and the Lord uh, Adonai um, using the tetragrammaton of of uh, Jesus. Um, at least um, this is the intertextual hint that the synoptics present. Um, so I think really Dave is suggesting Malachi is controlling here in light of all of these problems. I think it's because he wants it to be true. Yeah. Um, he needs it perhaps because of uh, he realizes perhaps subconsciously where all of this is going. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 uh, it seems that way to me. So <clears throat> let me ask you about... Um uh, some criticism that I think that Dave leveled uh, at your um, your approach to this. You know, he he uh, when when I asked him, uh, aren't the differences what really matter between the way that Jesus is spoken of in the New Testament and the way that the, that uh, agents are spoken of in Second Temple Judaism? Um, aren't the differences what really matter? He said, well, what what I don't think that Chris uh, Tilling considers is why it is that uh, that Jesus might be elevated to the status that that Dave thinks he is you know so I'm just wondering what do you have what are some of your thoughts in in answering in responding to that criticism from Dave yeah um, I uh, I think he he alights on a on a significant issue I mean Dave uh, tackles an important question here his basic his problem is he I don't seem to be asking uh, why is Christ treated or related to in these ways? Mm. Uh, and for, for Dave, it's because he's a, an utterly unique, um, uh, mutated intermediary figure, not God. And uh, and uh, for me, it's because uh, Christ uh, shares um, God's relational ontology, if I can if I can put it like that. In other words, this is a divine Christology. Um, how I'd respond to that um, is is to suggest that the question itself presupposes some difficulties. Uh, I think Dave put it somewhere that you know either God exalted Christ and and therefore we can explain divine uh, sorry early Christology or Paul's Christology in terms of his approach, or we have a God with multiple persons, which would be my approach. Um, at least the implications of my approach. But I think what we have here is a classic false either-or. Mm, false um, dilemma. I, I, would, I would like to suggest that um, it involves a very 
modern understanding of personhood, Dave's position, um, which would almost seem to isolate individuals and put them in competition with one another. Um, a Trinitarian orthodoxy has, um, it's not simply no problem uh, with, with God exalting Christ to his divine status. It's actually, um, it's actually a part of Trinitarian uh, dogma. Mm. I would want to say that, um, and it's clear in Paul, it's not always uh, explicit in individual arguments, but very often, Philippians 2 being, of course, a classic case uh, um, where Christ is given uh, the name, where God exalts Jesus Christ. Now, now, if that is then taken to mean um, that Paul's Christ isn't divine, well, then we've got to ignore everything else I, I would argue is is there in Paul's letters as well. I would want both. I want both God exalting Christ, uh, because God the Father and God the Son are not in competition as mm. persons. Uh, this, this is classic Trinitarian dogma. Uh, I think of, I've got Robert Jensen's book in front of me at the moment. I'm reading his The Triune Identity. And one of his points is, look, the Trinitarian dogma, it, it, the Trinity is the relation between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In other words, God exalting Jesus Christ to his right hand constitutes the divine identity. It, it isn't something that we set over against a divine Christology, because in order to do that, we have to put the scriptures out of joint. I would want both, simply, is my answer. The, the why question, why is God uh, a, uh, um, Christ treated in these ways? Um, is it because he is exalted to the divine side, or is it because he's divine? Both mm. is my answer. Um, and I think that that would then come back to disagreements that we would perhaps have relating to the nature of personhood, uh, as well as ontology. And, and perhaps we can talk a little bit about that when I ask some more meta questions of, mm. of David's position. Yeah, before you do ask those meta questions, though, I, I want to ask a, a little bit more about this uh, issue of exaltation. Um, in addition to what you just explained, it also seems to me that exaltation is explained by the fact that uh, that Jesus was um, – gosh, what's the word I'm looking – I mean, for, for lack of a better word that comes to my mind, he humiliated. In other words, he, he, Jesus condescended. He came down and lowered his, himself. You know, he, he debased himself um, to die a, a shameful death on the cross for us. Um, you know, Paul, Paul in, in that chapter in Philippians, it, it seems it, it does that very thing. Jesus emptied himself uh, of you know either the prerogatives of divinity or the honor of divinity, whatever. Um, so it seems to me to only make sense that he would um, th that upon accomplishing salvation, having been obedient to the Father's will, he would then be exalted back to a level of glory that he had before he was whatever the opposite of exalted is. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think often we're, we're trying to make many of these passages uh, fit uh, um, static creedal propositions that were developed in a slightly different philosophical frame. And, uh, and that means sometimes we'll be, we'll be adding little bits onto these passages in order to make them fit that later creedal context. That's fine, um, so long as we're not doing violence to the text. I'm not so sure um, in, in Philippians 2, um, 
kenosis as a as a doctrine is involved that is christ emptying himself i'm i'm not entirely sure there's too much speculation about uh christ's pre-existence it's probably presupposed um but what i would want to suggest then is that what you've just said is it's consistent with this passage but it might not be doing everything that that passage wants to do um in its own particular um philosophical context if that's the right way of phrasing it where we are dealing with god in in relationship with humans as defining who who god is yeah i think that's fair uh, and and but but i i think there are a number of passages that indicate that jesus um lowered himself in it's a i can't, I can't think of a better word right now lowered himself <laughs> um in, in such oh, yeah. a, you know and so and so his exaltation um in my mind yeah, was a return yeah. was a return that's to point. something yeah yeah, that's the, that's the definite point, because if we start speaking about emptying himself of divinity in order to do these things, and that I think this is the point of Philippians 2, Christ, in giving his life even to death on a cross, precisely in that demonstrated what true divinity is. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's not in spite of being in the form of God uh, that, you know, he did these things, but because he was in the form of God, um, he emptied himself into even to death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him and and publicly acknowledged him and gave him the name that is above every name. I think I think that probably captures the the the, the logic of Philippians two. I mean, this is Michael Gorman's um, thesis anyway, which has me persuaded. It fits quite well in with other, as you put, other Pauline passages. Yeah. Romans five eight, my favourite passage, I think, in 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 the Bible. Uh, you know, it's it's. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, there we have it again. That's a really powerful verse. I hadn't even considered that. Um, but no, that's good. Let me ask you one more question before I give you an opportunity to raise those sort of meta questions that you that you have in mind. Um, <clears throat> you know, toward the end of the discussion, Dave said that he tries to put himself in the shoes of uh, of uh, first century uh, Jesus's first century Jewish audience, and and I know that you probably uh, have something to say to that. But specifically, I wanted to ask you about Dave's claim that this that these uh, first century Jews would have had no um, no concept whatsoever or belief in whatsoever a plural um, a plural God. Uh, I, I've heard that claim made. I haven't heard it justified a whole lot. Um, I, I've, I've heard of ancient Jewish writings that refer to God as the mysterious three-in-one. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, you know, there are passages which seem to speak of, I mean, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord rained down heaven, uh, rained down, rained down uh, sulfur and brimstone from, uh, uh, from the Lord in heaven. You know, so there seem to be passages which kind of hint toward a plural divinity and i think there are ancient jewish writings that indicate that some of them might have believed in that or or, or do you think that dave might be right that that generally speaking jesus audience would have not have expected to have it revealed to them that, that god was plural in nature um okay well i would say that in terms of um the uh the scriptural evidence for potential plurality in god uh the evidence is is it's there for Christians to to make use of in in their their exegesis of Scripture, and the early church fathers did, of course, and you know using let us make uh, uh, humans in our image, and you know this sort of thing. And probably if we're doing uh, historical critical work, 
and trying to put these texts in their own context, then then it's going to be more difficult to say that this is the obvious original meaning or something like that. Probably we're talking here of of plurality in the heavens rather than in the divine himself, in the divine identity. Um, but that doesn't mean Christians can't make use of some of that um, material. I think the, the, I mean, as you know, there are some who have, have made claims for there being um, even trinitarian structures in in pre-christian rhetoric i'm i'm unpersuaded myself i don't mm. think the evidence is clear uh, but this is i mean it's, it's possible i suppose and you know it depends as well how you understand wisdom and logos and, and 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 so on but i think the key question is we need to ask we need to ask those issues of these texts that are appropriate to the time in which they are written in other words questions that are not anachronistic, questions mm. that don't presuppose later categories and then thrust them illegitimately back onto earlier texts that weren't addressing those particular questions. I mean, to, to a brief, basic example, it would be unreasonable for us to, um, to, to say, why didn't Paul the Apostle simply call Peter and James on his mobile telephone instead of having to go all the way back to Jerusalem for the council. You know, that that's ob an obvious anachronism, than, uh, namely the presence of the mobile phone. But we do that in more subtle ways as well. And I think this is where Dave is getting into some interpretive confusion when he is understanding uh, uh, or using his, his understanding of person as the interpretive uh, uh, lens for much of his argument as it relates to first century Judaism. Um, that's not to say that personhood is an illegitimate category to use in the first century, but, but person was understood in potentially rather different ways in the first century than how the church itself developed it as well. I thought that, that Dave's understanding of personhood reflected uh, very uh, perhaps Tertullian and, and others who started to use the, the the category of person for understanding how is it that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, it was a Trinitarian word uh, used in Trinitarian context to try to explain unity and diversity in in the Godhead. But in in the first century, I mean, scholars speak of dyadic personality. Um, those who were engaged in social scientific study of the New Testament, anyway, people like Philip Esler and others, they will say, look, our understanding of this modern, isolated individual is a very modern phenomenon, you know, post-Descartes, I think, therefore I am. But in those days, people were orientated more to the groups to which they belonged, and, uh, and hence the phrase dyadic personality. So all Cretans are liars, <laughs> or can anything good come out of, you know, all of these particular phrases assume um, a, a, a different understanding of personhood. I mean, that's that's all possible. I'm not entirely persuaded by by Philip Esler, but the point is this: personhood isn't a stable notion throughout the centuries. It develops in meaning, and and I think what Dave is doing is using later understandings of personhood rather than allowing the relational, epistemological and ontological framework of monotheism to 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 frame his understanding of personhood. I mean, this is getting a little bit complicated, I admit, but this is, this is very much about interpretive categories now and, and Dave's interpretive categories. And, and I'd like to speak a little bit more about his interpretive categories, and, but perhaps there's a question of clarification in some of this. 
Well, I guess what it comes down to is um, <clears throat> would it have been a challenge for a first century uh, Jewish person exposed to the writings of Paul? Um, would it have been a challenge for them to accept the possibility that God was plural, however it is that they might have understood that? Would it have been a challenge to, for them to think, gosh, there might be two uh, individuals, persons, whatever we might want to call them, um, that are equally the one true God of Israel. Um, and if, the, and if, and if they would have had that challenge, would Paul's relational language, his language about the Christ relation, which so closely mirrors, uh, the God, uh, the God relation in the old Testament, would that have been enough to overcome that challenge such that, uh, such that, you know, the, the, the reader of Paul is going to say, there's no escaping, you know, as, as, as difficult as it might be for me to conceive of plurality within God, there's no escaping that conclusion from Paul's clear uh, language. Is, is that, you know? Um, kind of. I'm, but, you know, every generation, uh, we, we have our own language and we have our, our own theoretical frameworks uh, in which we understand the impact of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the early church, they had uh, prosopon, um, particularly as that was taken to mean person, and an instantiation of 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 thatness, uh, uh, a particular um, moment of of being, is a way of understanding how person was understood in in the early church, and so they they deployed hypostasis and and prosopon to key terms. Uh, to develop their understanding of Christ in terms of his unity with God and his distinction from God as well. Um, so Tertullian famously, um, that God is, is one being but three persons. Um, now that wasn't entirely satisfactory for, for, for the early church. There was some debate about whether that too clumsily distinguished God the Son from God the Father. Um, and so hypostasis came to be tied into issues more more concretely and um, but the 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 issue then is the apostle paul he was dealing with the impact of jesus with his framework his language and and rather than having this idea of of there being plurality in the godhead as being the driving force or the key question it simply wasn't the key question mm. uh, rather what we had to deal with was a god who was known uh and uh in terms of this dynamic relational reality which consumed the whole of life. I think Dave at one point says, look, first century Jews, there was one God who was one person. Um, now, if we understand person here to mean this isolated individual, which would then be in competition with the personhood of Christ, um, that is that is a, simply an anachronism. Uh, what we have, uh, rather, is certainly one God. And he was related to, and that's where his personhood comes to be understood, God's personhood, related to and in an exclusive way. So Paul, when speaking of the uniqueness of, uh, uh, of Christ and of God, spoke about them both in terms of this unique relationship. They are both persons, but then there isn't speculation about isolated individuals or individual persons and how they may relate in the Godhead. The early church came to ponder some of those things as they sharpened their vocabulary relating to personhood, hypostasis, uh, being, and such other matters. But for Paul, the issue of ontology and epistemology was slightly different, hence my 
recourse to relational epistemology and relational ontology all of the time. That simply puts a question mark over something that Dave seems to take for granted uh, about this one God, one person. Mm. Okay. Well, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so maybe now I will just let you uh, address those, um, you know, uh, interpretational issues that you had, you know, and uh, the, the sort of meta questions that you wanted to ask. Well, t- tell us about those. Okay, well, we've really begun touching on them. Um, I, kn- I know some of these issues are, are very complicated, and I haven't done my best in explaining them. Uh, apologies for that. But, you know, I, I, th- I think my, my concern with Dave's approach, apart from the fact that um, uh, it doesn't answer uh, the, um, the pressing interpretive need of so much in Paul's letters, is, is I wonder if we should describe his position not as biblical, but as selective biblicism. Hmm. Um, and, and I say that for, for two reasons. I think there's a sense in which um, he is being uh, highly selective in the passages that he takes as determinative, I mean from an interpretive perspective. Uh, and I think he's also uh, slightly naive on the, the way the early church wrestled with these, wrestled with these questions and given over then to anachronism. And this, this is the classic case of biblicism is to, is to read the Bible naively, and that is to put it within our own categories and concerns and not realize we are doing that. Hmm. That's biblicism, I think. Uh, and, and I see selective biblicism involved here. So he, he, he asks, look, why wasn't there then explicit teaching in Paul about God uh, having multiple persons and so on? Well, my, my response simply is that we do have explicit teaching in Paul's letters, not what he wants it to be on, Hmm. but in a very Jewish, first century Jewish Christian way of wrestling with the question of Paul's divine Christology. That is certainly there. Um, He speaks about the distinction between a functional uh, Christology and an ontological Christology. Once again, I think these are anachronisms. Um, I, the, to speak of function over against ontology has been popular amongst many uh, 20th century biblical scholars engaging in Christology. So I'm not just pin- pointing the finger at, at Dave here, um, but, but at many others. But you see, function makes sense in an age when, you know, in, in mathematics, for example, there are functional equations and that. And it, but that's not, this is anachronism again. This is back to Paul calling Peter on his mobile telephone. Uh, what we have in in first century ontological um, thought is a merging of functional and ontological in what I call relational ontology. So, so um, I think that just puts a big question mark against some of his uh, his interpretive passages. But a, cu- a couple of, of issues because I said selective biblicism, um, anachronism is involved here. Um, uh, as is treatment of, of scripture, um, but but so I think is naivety about how how the early church wrestled with many of these questions, and particularly the formation of the canon. Um, I, I suppose I mean Dave may well be well aware of this, but um, it seems to me that one has to be careful in suggesting that the canon was received and recognised as authoritative by Trinitarians. Mm. rightly, and they chose the right canon, um, but they were wrong on the most fundamental issue of doctrine um, uh, in, in, in so doing. Um, I think that's quite a, 
problematic position. At least it, it raises the plausibility stakes. Um, and as well, the, the creeds, and Dave speaks of, of Christ being eter- possibly eternal, depending on how one understands time, and, and creative. You know, the, the creeds, they're wrestling with these issues as well. It's not new. It isn't because of critical scholarship or new scholarship saying, ah, oh, look, Trinitarians, you've mm-hmm. missed all of this stuff about Christ being given the name. The early church knew all of that. And so they spoke of begotten but not made. You know, the, the, the early church wrestled uh, intensively with these issues. Um, and, and by the way, I would suggest in, in that respect that, that Dave isn't semi-Aryan. Um, Arius had quite a high Christology. And, and for that, I do recommend the classic work by Ryan Williams on Arius. Um, he's, he's being Arian um, in, in all of this. And, and I suppose, finally, my, my issue is in interpretive stance. Dave has said, look, Christ is unparalleled in terms of all of the intermediary figures of the ancient world. You, you know, there are aspects of, of, of Enoch or of or of, of the Logos in Philo, or, or the way individuals are worshipped, and so on and so forth. But in Christ, there's something utterly unique. In other words, there's a mutation um, into uh, an utterly unique intermediary figure, but not God. I mean, this he claims to be building on um, Larry Hurtado's claims here, although I think Larry opens himself up for some of these um, side swipes. But um, <laughs> let me just say this. Um, Christ isn't unparalleled, that the way Christ is understood in the first century, it isn't unparalleled in the first century. That's absolutely crucial. There is a parallel to how Christ was uh, understood in first century terms, namely in how God was related to. The Christ relation is analogous only and precisely to the God relation, which is a position of of, Christ. of incredible theological importance that I'd like Dave to wrestle with uh, a little more. Okay, well, yeah, that's very <clears throat> that's very powerful stuff, and and uh, you know, hopefully that'll give him something to chew on before we do round two if we're if we're able to. Uh, let me. So we, we've said a lot. Um, is is there is there anything you'd want to say to just sort of sum to sum everything up to wrap everything up so that uh, uh, to sort of capture you know everything that's been said. Yeah, I'd be glad to. In fact, so well, um, as as uh, Dave uh, spoke to Chris, um, he did uh, he did ask us a question, didn't he? You know, which is more likely? And then he gave us a couple of options. I mean, this, in light of uh, my own approach, in light of our discussion, this is what I would like to ask. You know, which is more likely? Um, on the one hand, we we have a, if I may say so, a vigorously historical and exegetically thorough approach. At least that's what I, I, I maintain in Paul's Divine Christology. Um, it seeks to to honour the explanatory con- conditions of, of an accurate account of Jewish monotheism, uh, Paul's way of knowing, that the nature, scope, and dominant trends of Paul's own Christ language, all of these things need to be included in an explanation, and I think I, I've done that. And as a consequence, and on the basis of this, what I would do is say that I've presented dozens of texts that show that Paul's, it, Paul expressed knowledge of Christ in the way Second Temple Judaism expressed only the transcendent uniqueness of God. So we, we have a Pauline divine Christology in a way that answers that key, key question. How, what, what constitutes the transcendent uniqueness of God? 
Mm. And that is how Paul expresses his Christology. This approach then fits nicely with the grammar of Christian Trinitarian doctrine and, and all the Church's practices, both of which frame the development of the canon and, and uh, offered the theological foundation for all of the major Christian doctrines. This isn't merely an aside, one doctrine that we can agree on or not as Christians. Yeah. With, with the divine, Christolo- uh, divine Christ, everything falls or stands. Now, on the other hand, we have, as far as I can see from my limited exposure to, to Dave's position, an approach that doesn't convince me at uh, key exegetical points, and it sidelines the development of the canon, the ecclesial context in which the canon grew. It presents a limited number of verses passed through interpretive lenses that I think are anachronistic, the anachronistic conceptions of person, ontology, and epistemology. And as a consequence, this position must avoid recognizing properly Pauline patterns of material. Mm. Therefore, I think, dislocates dozens of texts from their own explanatory home, the explanatory context. And I think also it unnaturally separates the first Christians from almost all generations following, as as well as those who received and selected the canon, on which this position claims to base its own claims. So I have to ask, which is the most likely? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, one whose answer I, I think I, <laughs> I think I share with you. Um, you know, I, as we wrap things up, uh, I might have asked you this when I interviewed you uh, for my show some number of months back. I, is there is there some way that my listeners can get their hands on your book in such a way that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg, or yet, or or is it still pretty pricey? You know, I'm again. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm. I have been badgering a particular publishing house to to publish Paul's Divine Christology uh, much cheaper. Um, I'm hopeful that that is going to happen, certainly within the next few years. Until then, uh, one publishing house has asked me to write uh, a, a Paul's Christology at a, at a much more popular level, oh, cool. um, which I plan to do towards the end of this year. Uh, but also I've got a couple of shorter versions of my argument, uh, summaries, if you like, in in a couple of books coming out. Um, one is called Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul. And there I, I summarize some of my understanding of Paul's Christology in order to think about matters relating to justification and, and works of law and faith and all those fascinating issues. Um, I, uh, that's hopefully will be out in a couple of months' time, Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul. More importantly, uh, we have a collection of essays, or rather there's a number of us responding to Bart Elman. Uh, Bart has uh, a new book coming out, How Did Jesus Become God? And a number of us res- have responded, Craig Evans, Chuck Hill, myself, Mike Bird, Simon Gaffico, others, um, and in a book called How Did God Become Jesus? <laughs> I've got two chapters in there, and in one chapter I lay out something along the lines of the explanatory conditions that I spoke about earlier. Uh, and and that, that's all written at a very popular level, which I hope anyone will be able to um, to enjoy. Uh, but that's um, I, I'm sorry, uh, again, that the Morsey Beck book is so expensive. I, I would love it to be sold um, cheaper. But I've got to say a huge thank you as well that 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 you have showed interest in it, that, that Dave has read it. You know, it, it gives me a real kick to know that my book has been 
has been read, even if, even if there's disagreement. It's um, and Dave will know what I mean as well, but it gives you a, an author a real kick. Uh, so thanks very much for the interest. Thanks. And, and thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, we will um, keep in touch about round two. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found it challenging. I hope it gave you some food for thought. Uh, I'm going to try to arrange a round two with Chris and Dave, hopefully on the same call. Uh, but whether that's next episode or not, I hope you'll stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Mm-hmm.